CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Welcome to a Valentine's Week edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic here with my co-host Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. And he is in full Valentine's regalia uh, with his red Nike hoodie. And I dig it. And uh, thank you for dressing up for the occasion, Jonah. It's very nice of you to do that. Um, do you... Anything you want to maybe mention about the sentimentality of Valentine's week for you and the Bronstein household? Well, uh, no sentimentality. And as we talked about off the air, I did maybe pull this red sweatshirt out of the closet to uh, out of the drawer to wear on Valentine's day. And now we're two days removed from Valentine's day and I'm still wearing it. Um, I've been homesick slash working from home the past couple of days and haven't had really any reason to change my clothes or my appearance or comb my hair or do anything like that. But also, I was looking up various for February 16th holidays. Maybe I'm wearing red for a different reason that I couldn't uh, decipher at first. And the only one I can come up with is Tim Tam Day. don't even know what that is. But it's an Australian cookie. And I thought maybe you, being a Tim, might know what a Tim Tam is. No, never heard of it. What would be another good red one? Uh, International Canned Salmon Day. Uh, international uh, Red Wedding Day from Game of Thrones or some such. But how about the Kansas City Chiefs? They wear red. And it's been a big week for them. Been a big week for them. Uh, okay, so this is our first episode uh, since the Super Bowl. Um, anything, any just thoughts? I mean, really, uh, two guys uh, who shoot the shit like we do. I don't think that we're going to maybe mention uh, much uh, that nobody else has already discussed or put through the rototiller of uh, media consumption over the last few days. But let me just get your for the record take on the penalty at the end of the game, because that is wherever I go, that is the only question people have about the Super Bowl. Hey, what'd you think of the game and how it ended? Well, I thought it was a great game with a deflating ending because it wasn't as exciting, mostly because of that call and the way it kind of ended. But that's a call that gets made in just about every NFL game that you watch. Sometimes it happens in the fourth quarter on a crucial drive. It's the way the game is officiated now. And I think a lot of us as fans and maybe even some people in the league would like it to be a swallow your whistle type situation like playoff hockey or like it can be sometimes in basketball where you don't let the officials decide the game in that fashion. But that's not how NFL football has been officiated in recent times. That, that play is almost designed to draw a penalty as much as it is to get a guy open and make a reception in the end zone. I'm a bigger fan of consistent officiating through crucial moments uh, than I am swallowing the whistle and letting them play, whether it be in the National Basketball Association, the Final Four, uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs, you know, all of that type of stuff. Um, I would rather see the game called in the playoffs just the same way it's called in the regular season. And you think through to, you know, I think the most common thought that you have of where the rules change is with uh, the uh, NHL and especially the deeper you get into a series and players just get mauled and it takes away from the game. And I think that if the game were called more straight up, then you wouldn't have those situations at the end of the game. And at the biggest stage, the game would be more honest. Now, of course, that wouldn't necessarily uh, have mattered with Sunday night's game because it was just a dud of a, it was a dud of a finish. And it's, it's unfortunate because it was a fantastic game from start to almost finish uh, 58 minutes. It was a great game, but I don't think that the NFL should be in the business of orchestrating finishes based on what would look good on television or what would mag, uh, magnify the drama, because then you'd get into a situation, I think on the other side where 
you know, wouldn't it be a shame if the Chiefs stalled on it with a three and out? Uh, if if somebody took the lead and uh, and then all of a sudden you get the the call down the field of a, a questionable pass interference that gives a team new life when it was just a you know a, a hail mary style desperation play and then all of a sudden the offense gets forty five yards out of it. Um, I mean, you could question both sides. You can always question the officiating as to lost the game for this team, won it for that game, wanted to maintain the drama. This this should be a, a more of a fantastic finish. Uh, what a boring ending uh, with Patrick Mahomes kneeling it out for a field goal, all of that type of stuff. So I know I just uh, spat out a lot of words there, but I think that if if you want it, you can't always have it whatever way suits the moment. It should be called the same way. And Granted, you can go back in history and find all the times that it should have been called and wasn't, and and that was that to me is more outrageous than having a play called or having a penalty called legitimately uh, at a key moment than having a penalty ignored uh, just because uh, you're supposed to let them play. Yeah, and I do believe a little bit in that let them play and let the players decide things towards the end of the game. I don't know if it needs to be different in the Super Bowl or the playoffs. What about a player getting hacked when he goes down the lane? I mean, that you see that, so that's common. And I know that you're more of the basketball world and you've probably experienced and have half a dozen examples off the top of your head where a, a player went down the lane and got hacked, but it wasn't called because, well, you got to make that shot. You, it has well, nothing. The defense can get, get away with murder uh, and – the, the, the offense just has to make the play and sorry uh, if, if the defense uh, takes liberties and breaks the rules, uh, you got to find a way to, to pull out a miracle. Yeah. But I think that's pretty ingrained in basketball culture, even playing like pickup style or recreation league or the game 21. If you ever play that game and somebody has 19 points and they're one hoop away, they get destroyed. That's just kind of the way basketball goes and that you don't really win the game on a touch foul. But at the professional level, you do see that sometimes in the NBA where there are um, soft calls or borderline calls made towards the end of the game, and there's the same complaints about that the referee shouldn't decide the game. But at the professional level, it's been decided that they don't use robot refs. Baseball is kind of trending towards that a little bit, but that the refs should be like robots. Whatever they see, if it's a violation, they call it, whether it's the first play of the game or the last play of the game, the first game of the season or the last game of the season. And in this case, that is how it played out. I think you could have a conversation about defensive holding and what defensive backs are able to do to wide receivers and that maybe that has shifted too far in favor of the offense. And this could be a little bit of a talking point for modifying that rule or officiating it a little bit differently. But the last game of the season seems to be officiated just as all of the other previous games were. And that's the way it should be. I don't think officiating should be an art. I think officiating should be done by the book. Um, and yes, there are several penalties that are open for interpretation and aren't as objective as others, such as jumping off sides or, um, you know, a hit to the head, you know, the, even some of those have, are, are subjective, um, personal fouls. There's all, everything is within the eye of the, the beholder and the NFL has all kinds of guidelines that are supposed to be met. They try to streamline these uh, penalties and make them as consistent as possible. So that way it's like a McDonald's franchise. You go into a McDonald's in Albuquerque and you're going to get the same exact meal that you get when you're in a McDonald's in Dayton, Ohio. Um, they want all their officiating crews to be able to referee those games, but uh, in the same way, but you see, uh, and he does a great job with it. Rick Gosselin. Uh, the the legendary sports writer who does his officiating crew breakdowns and he sends them out uh, the days of each game and he will give uh, a rundown of, okay, this crew is known for calling the least penalties of any crew in the league. They are specifically geared towards letting pass interference go. Uh, this crew is really tight on um, personal fouls and, you know, this, so they, there are differences. And I think that the NFL needs to get to more of a place of consistency, and that's what they want to do. Um, I think they 
you know, it's one of the things that really sucks about baseball is that you don't know what a strike zone is from umpire to umpire and sometimes from inning to inning. Um, but, uh, but anyway, I, my, my main point is I don't think officiating should be an art. These guys have so much to worry about as it is. And in the national football league, they're not even full-time employees. Uh, and they have to manage a game, a tight game. Um, and to then have to expect the official to, all right, you're going to need to understand the situation here and what the NFL would want or what the fans would want. That's the exact opposite of what an official or an umpire or a referee should be doing or concerned with is what do the people want here? Um, and then you get into with all the gambling that is available and, you know, is this guy on the take, uh, is the league dirty? Is it scripted? Uh, which was one of the big storylines from a couple of weeks ago with uh, Arian Foster. Um, was it Arian Foster? I think uh, so. I think that's saying that uh, he that he's even seen these scripts uh, that everything is scripted. Uh, you know, the, you don't need that. And and I and anybody who looks at it, including the player himself, admitted that it was a penalty. And Okay, so I get it. It was against what we wanted to see. That doesn't mean it shouldn't have been called. And um, I don't know if you have any more to, to just to say on that, Jonah, but I, I only wanted to touch on it because it is the talking point. People don't even want to talk to me about the game or the Chiefs versus the, the Eagles or Hurts versus Mahomes. They just want to know, uh, and not even from me because I'm a sports writer. That's all they're talking about. You know, when I stop by Elmo's, it's just, how about that penalty? You know, or uh, what'd you think of this? Or should that have been? And people aren't talking about the game. And, and I, and maybe that is proof in and of itself that the penalty was sucked, uh, but it was correct. And it's unfortunate. And penalties sometimes happen. Yeah. I think it's also a reflection on how most. This wasn't a chuck rule situation. Let's put it that way. No, you know it what was, I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't a blown call. It was the correct call. Right. You want to debate the timing of it, but it, it, was, it wasn't a blown call. But I think that's a reflection on how most people consume sports these days. Now, if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan or you had gambled on the game and lost in some way because of that play, I could see the outrage. What I don't understand is the casual fan outrage over what was the correct call. And you know there's going to be calls throughout the game that, you know, the refs aren't perfect and it's part of the game. But I think it's where we're at now where, you know, everything is what are we going to talk about on the debate show the next day or what are we going to talk about on the TGF podcast four days later? It's not as interesting, I think, to just watch a game and be like, wow, that was a really fun game to watch. And I think the best team won and then kind of click it off and go YouTube Rihanna videos or whatever you feel compelled to do. There's Everybody's got to have, a reaction now and those of us in the business kind of have to have a reaction for our own jobs and the debate shows serve their own purpose but every sports fan or a lot of the sports fans have turned into amateur debate show pundits and it just we're always kind of looking for the talking point after the game more so than just and you can say that with um entertainment too i mean i think more people wanted to complain about something like the finale of game of thrones than actually be entertained by the finale of Game of Thrones. Sopranos finale. Right. But you think about it, we're still talking about that years later and maybe a more satisfying ending would not have been as memorable. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I don't know that that's the case with this particular game. It, it I would like to have seen um, the Eagles successfully allow the Chiefs to get into the end zone to induce the, the late purposeful touchdown uh, or to have seen uh, one more trade-off of, uh, of possessions, you know, maybe even see an overtime, but um, that's the, the game went how it went. And uh, that's uh, penalties are a part of the game. Um, Jonah, let's uh, not called. It really changes the result. I was asked that question and I thought, no, it looked to me like the chiefs were on their way to winning that game before that play. Yeah. That's the other thing too, is it's, Similar to the argument of Brett Hull's foot in the crease. Uh, that doesn't mean that the Stars wouldn't have still won that game, number one. And that was only game six. The Sabres would have had to have won the next game, too. And I think a lot of people remember that call as costing the Sabres uh, the Stanley Cup, as though if Brett Hull gets stopped there, 
the Sabres win it all. I mean, I know that 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 can't mathematically be possible, but it's it's almost treated as such. Is that that uh, the foot in the crease robbed the Sabres of their Stanley Cup? A lot of things still had to happen uh, for them to win, and the the Stars would have been going home for Game Seven, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Sabres. Let's stay on the Sabres. Um, they are super interesting still, uh, which is maybe a feat in and of itself on February 16th, year of our Lord, 2023. Uh, they are playing meaningful games still, and they are fun. Uh, and yes, uh, maybe similar to the ending of the Super Bowl, they came out uh, uh, earlier this week with a dud uh, against the LA Kings, but then come back last night, 7-3 to victory uh, at Anaheim. And they are four points out of the wild card uh, entering tonight's games. Uh, they play uh, San Jose Saturday night at 1030. That's the next game. But uh, seven goals at Anaheim last night. Um, they're, they remain uh, super uh, entertaining. Um, Jonah, they, they changed the lines there with L.A. Uh, and went back versus Anaheim to a more standard uh uh, lineup. Uh, what were your thoughts on uh, Don Granado uh, making that switch uh, to start the road trip? I think something was necessary, some sort of change, because they had only well, they scored two goals and one goal and two home losses built around the break. The first one, last game before the All Star break, uh, it was chalked up to them being tired, and then coming out of the All Star break it was oh, we haven't played in nine days, we weren't uh, sharp or we weren't fresh enough. Fresh is what Don Granato said, even though that might not be what he meant. So the offense had been struggling, and they're not a team that was averaging four goals a game like they were for most of the season, so something maybe had to be tweaked. But the top line had been so good together that taking Tage Thompson, the, the team's all-star player, off the top line and not being the number one center anymore didn't seem like a sustainable switch. And they moved that, they moved that back to Thompson being on the top line, and there's been some shuffling on the lines below, but it's settled in. I think it settles into being very close to the lines that they had before this road trip when they maybe come off of the road trip, but putting guys with different guys and guys in different roles to try to jumpstart and spark some better play is something that I think has some value. And we might've seen it last night. And we've seen a trend throughout the season where Kylo Poso tends to stay on the fourth or tends to be on the fourth line more often than not. But when the Sabres need a spark, he's been moved up to the top line for a period. He's been moved on to the second or third line. And having him on a line with some of these younger struggling players has gotten them going. And we saw another example of that last night. What about the goaltending? And this is obviously a big question. Uh, Eric Comrie last night uh, gets a victory, but three goals allowed. Uh, some harrowing moments, uh, particularly in the second period. Uh, Craig Anderson the night before did not look like the usual Craig Anderson. And of course, you're going to get that, I think, with a player uh, of his age. I think uh, you can't expect him to be, um, you know, elastic man and just uh, bounce back uh, whenever he's called upon. Uh, and UPL. Uh, well, anyways, we have three goaltenders uh, for the Sabres and uh, still seems to be like uh, uh, some sort of derby uh, with everybody jockeying around. Uh, Sabres fans would love for there to be a goaltending trade of some kind, uh, perhaps to shore up that position. And I talked with uh, Chris Baker about that for a satchel that I did at The Athletic uh, we talked, in, in fact, a little deeper than that. If uh, with everything that's going on with the Sabres and as close as they are to the playoffs right now, uh, we even talked about who should be untouchable uh, uh, when it comes to prospects. And the only untouchable prospect that Chris Baker mentioned was Devin Levi. And the reason being is that he really likes the path that the Sabres have created for Devin Levi, that there's not going to be any kind of clog uh, of him ascending uh, to that position once it's his time. And of course, Devin Levi, just recently the uh, MVP of the prestigious Beanpot Tournament in Boston. Um, and uh, you're around the team a lot. 
uh, I, I think that uh, I'm I'm with Chris Baker on this that they have they have grown so organically they haven't forced anything their process has worked to this point yes you can argue that sometimes you need a little boost or a catalyst uh, to nudge things along when you get it but are we getting too excited here Jonah uh, is it uh, is it maybe too soon to to uh, to try to turn it to veer into the the passing lane and hit the accelerator? Um, in terms of the playoff chances, well, talking, let, me, let me address the goal. I'm, I, I'm yeah, talking about a trade, you know, like every ah, there's yeah. this talk of, of a trade. And I think that when you look at the position that is uh, the, the biggest that could be improved with the Sabres right now, it's their goaltending because they're scoring. Uh, they play adequate defense. Uh, so if they can, come up with the the great stop uh, the big save in the key moment uh, which isn't a consistent uh, factor for them and has not been all season hasn't been for years uh, if they could find a goaltender who is has that dynamic to his game and can lock down on a on a night uh, here or there uh, and you know so they can win five to one instead of seven to three or whatever the hell they have to do um, I mean, I, I, I definitely do not think the Sabres are going to trade for a goaltender here at the trade deadline. I don't think they're going to make a major move for a goaltender in the offseason, although that's a little more likely maybe if they identify someone they really want. And if Craig Anderson retires, they might have, you know, some need for another goaltender. But I think they're going to the end of the season with the three goalies they've got. In fact, one of the issues that they've had from a roster standpoint is trying to squeeze three goalies onto the roster and playing all three of them. And they've had to, uh, you know, get rid of Vinny Henestrosa and put him down in the minors. But I think that this season, that because of the path you mentioned with Devin Levi, they don't want to bring in a goaltender that blocks his development and his opportunities next year in Buffalo or Rochester. They haven't given up yet. I think on Uka Pegalukanen, he's, not always been great and his numbers say percentage of goals against average aren't great but they've won more often than not with him in the net and they've won more often than not with craig anderson in the net so i think they're content with what they have right now as a goaltending situation it does need to get better if they get into the playoffs what they have is probably not good enough and they won't last very long in the playoffs this year or next year and you can be concerned i think a little bit that upl doesn't look like the great goaltender of the future that maybe they wanted him to be but maybe that's Devin Levi that's going to take that mantle in a year or two. So I don't really see any big moves to make at gold or them making any big moves at goaltender. I'm not sure they make a big swing for the fences type trade at any position, but if it does happen, I think it'll be a defenseman because as much as the goaltending hasn't been great, they could play some better defense in front of the goalies, especially in key situations in the third period when they really need to protect the lead. That seems to be where the defense has been the most lacking in controlling the game on the defensive zone. The player that uh, Chris Baker mentioned who could be the most enticing is uh, Yuri Kulic, uh, the Czechoslovakian center who is in his first season with the Rochester Americans. He was drafted just last year, uh, 28th overall. And of course, playing in the Czech Republic and not having a big body of work, that's how a player like him ends up getting drafted 28th overall. But uh, having a great season uh, with the Amherst, uh, 36 games, he has 10 goals and 14 assists. And of course, you can go back to his uh, the World Juniors when he had seven goals and two assists in seven games for the Czechs. Um, he was a plus 10. Um, He's an enticing player, and Chris Baker thinks that he will be a difference maker at the NHL level, to which I had a discussion with him, like, why not keep him? And the thing being is that uh, the Sabres have so many young players that have locked down spots. I mean, they have, uh, at some point, you need to maybe give something up to get a piece uh, that you need to get you over the top, and and Yuri Kulich might be that guy. Um, so... Anyways, I just thought it was interesting when I reached out to Chris about that topic for the satchel. That was the player that he mentioned, and he loves Coolidge. Um, so, uh, but he also is of a belief that uh, in a perfect world, you just keep growing organically because it's been working. 
their scouts have been hitting. Uh, their development has been developing. Uh, their coaches have been instilling whatever it is uh, that is needed uh, for this team to be cultivated. And it, it, it's, it's increasing. And of course, a lot of it has to do with Tage Thompson and his otherworldly uh, journey from being a player who wasn't supposed to be this. And Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic did a great story on that with some data points uh, regarding players uh, of his stripe. Uh, it just doesn't happen uh, in terms of uh, development and uh, background and size and all of that type of thing uh, to explode the way he has at, at this stage. Um, I mean, maybe Jason Bottrell just got lucky. It was a scratch off ticket uh, is the phrase that you use, uh, but uh, that one hit. Um, well, the Sabres also moved him positions and he wasn't playing quite as well on the wing as he is at center. But as far as the trade market, I mean, I think there's a large segment of the Sabres fan base that sees the Sabres with the cap room that they have and the prospects, and they have an extra first and second round pick coming in this next draft. They have the assets to make a big trade if they want to. I don't get any sense that they want to make a big trade or that they want to give up a lot of assets to try to make the playoffs, which even at this point, the odds are, even though they're in the mix, the odds are a lot greater that they won't make the playoffs, even if they made a move. They have a lot of teams to contend with and try to out position just to get the seventh or the eighth playoff spot. And I don't think this is a team that when they get into the playoffs can expect to be big time contenders right away. Might help the development, but I don't see them trading too many young assets or picks or prospects for a rental type player. And they have an opportunity. They're going to have even more cap room next summer and possibly into the summer after that. And they're going to have opportunities to trade young players, prospects to get a better present day situation and make a playoff push in the future that I don't think they need to make a hasty move and to do that now. And if you read between the lines on some of the things Kevin Adams said when he talked to us after the All-Star break last week, um, he, he's telegraphing that they're not going to make a major, major move. They might make a fringe move, but I don't expect them to trade any prospects that they're high on for any veteran players that are an obvious part of the long-term solution. And that includes contractually. And I don't think they're interested in trading for anybody that makes any more money than Tage Thompson and Dylan Cousins will be making next year. So I wouldn't expect a big move to be made before this deadline. Is this season a failure if they don't make the playoffs now? Well, I, I, I like to ask that question because I'm not so sure. I, I'd be interested in your take on it. I would say no because I don't think there were any expectations in the preseason that the team needed to make the playoffs this year. And even though they've, they've been competitive throughout the year and in, on, right on the edge of that playoff contention throughout the season, I think, as you mentioned at the top, playing meaningful games in March and April and making a push toward the playoff and being the best non-playoff team during this 12-season drought I think should be acceptable, and especially with the youth of the team, the youngest roster in the NHL, that that is considered a step toward being a playoff team next year. But then again, they are in the 12th year of their playoff drought, which is an NHL record. And if you kind of think back to the Bills when they were in year 11, year 12, there was a lot more angst that this team has to make the playoffs now. That it's it took a lot of pressure off. Of course, that was a coach in his first year. And Don Granato, not technically his first year, but still knew enough. Um, Kevin Adams still knew enough, but I do think that that playoff season that broke the, the bills famine, um, bought a lot of time for Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean, although, and this is another satchel question that was asked, um, a reader wanted to know if Brandon Bean doesn't have a great draft, will he be fired or should he be fired? And part of my response was you have to keep in mind the mentality of the person who would be making that decision, Terry Pagula. This guy's been sick of walking around in the sports darkness forever. He bought a team that had the longest playout dro uh, playoff drought uh, in franchise history. He's now um, overseeing the longest NHL postseason drought uh, and the longest in franchise history. And he seems to have hit uh, on his coaches for the first time. You know, Rex Ryan is finally just now getting back into the NFL after he was heralded as a great hire by myself included uh, by Terry Pagula when he took over the Bills. Well, Russ uh, 
Uh, Rex Ryan is now getting back into the NFL as the Denver Broncos defensive coordinator uh, after, what, seven years of being out of the game? Six years, I guess it is. Um, he finally got it right with Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean. I think he feels like he's in a great spot right now where he's finally gotten it right with Don Granado and Kevin Adams. They don't need to make the playoffs this year to prove it to Terry Pagula. I think that Terry Pagula is thrilled with where both teams are trending right now. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think maybe we got to question the mental state of some of the people that ask these questions or <laughs> raise these topics on Twitter. Are they just chaos agents or are they some people that just want to be provocative or are never happy? I, and I want to state, I want to state, if you want to take a look at my mailbag questions, they're, all of them are there. I didn't just cherry pick the negative ones. Um, there were not any questions in there about, hey, Tim, what, what isn't that a great season uh, that the Bills just had? What was your favorite part? Or can you tell us uh, about uh, the inside story about what a uh, marvelous finish they had despite all of their setbacks and potential tragedies that they were dealing with? It was, Ken Dorsey's got to go. Leslie Frazier's got to go. Sean McDermott's got to go. Brandon Bean should be on the hot seat. Uh, overhaul the scouting department. Overhaul the scouting department. His scouting department is loaded with former and future, and has been, uh, former and future general managers and guys who interview for general manager jobs. He has a cabinet that probably 29 teams would love to have. Um, and one of the questions was about overhauling the scouting department because uh, of day two misses. And of course, I mean, that's a bit of a fallacy. There have been a lot of day two hits. There have been a lot of day three hits too. Uh, but um, anyways, I think that both organizations are doing wonderfully right now. And uh, But I do fear that if the Sabres don't make the playoffs, uh, there is going to be a lot of angst from the fans because it's close and they get there and they want it. And I think that they've seen, and I think that it's also a, such a common Patch, uh, to look at a, at a team like the Sabres and say, it's obvious they need goaltending help. And you can go back to the offseason. You can go back to last season and say, why haven't they done something about the goaltending? And if they fail down the stretch, it's probably not going to be from a lack of scoring goals. It's probably going to be goaltending. And I could see the fan base saying, see, we would be in the playoffs right now if Kevin Adams would have just done the obvious thing and shored up the net minding on this team. Well, yeah, I just don't know if there's really, is there really the veteran goaltender on the market that they can get that is going to make the difference? I don't know. I mean, you can look back a couple of years ago and they should have re-signed Linus Allmark, and he's now uh, one of the favorites for the Vezina Trophy, and maybe he is the goaltender that this team needs. But I think they made their decision years ago, and they're still in the process of this, of, letting UPL develop and bringing in Devin Levi. And before that, Eric Pertillo was the prospect goalie that they were excited about and not blocking that path and waiting for that goaltender to develop organically and relying on Craig Anderson, who's been pretty good. He's just at his age, not reliable to play more than once a week and hasn't been as good maybe in his last few starts as he was earlier in the season. But I think you do bring up or there, there's maybe an interesting parallel to be drawn with the Bills and the Sabres and their coaching staffs, which are in different phases of development. But I think, you know, Don Granato's done a tremendous job, I believe, over the last – first coming in as an interim, the job he did in turning around the culture very quickly. Then I think he did a, a good job last year with a team that lost a lot of games, but the vibes were good and everybody – there was a lot of good feeling coming into this season, and a lot of that good feeling has – continued, even though there's still a team that probably is going to finish out of the playoffs. But I think you see a lot of progress and a lot of excitement over what they're building and the players seem to like playing for him. He's put in a system that's high scoring and fun to watch. And he's very transparent in the way he talks to the media. I mean, I have no criticisms of Don Granato, but knowing how hockey is in the NHL is, I mean, maybe you can explain this better than I can, but it does seem to be like one of these situations where Don Granato is the coach that gets the Sabres to a certain level. And maybe there's another coach that comes in and puts them over the top in a year or two or three. And just to put the button on that point, I think it's crazy to talk about firing Brandon Bean or Sean McDermott or really 
any of the Bills coaches. I mean, if Sean McDermott wants to make some tweaks on his staff that he thinks are needed, fine. But any major heads got a roll move because this team didn't live up to expectations, I think is crazy talk. But as the Bills continue to reach a certain ceiling in the postseason, I mean, are they one of those teams that maybe need a new approach to get over the hump? I, I think they're a year or two away from that, but is there ever a point where they lose in the AFC championship game with a 13 and three record? And you say, yeah, maybe they do need to make a coaching change. Uh, I guess it could get to that point. I mean, especially if there's different, especially if there's friction, you know, if there's some sort of friction, if you start to see Josh Allen saying things out of, out of turn uh, about Sean McDermott, I don't think that's ever going to happen because Josh Allen's not that kind of guy. But wait, maybe we should like this. You want to talk about Stefan Diggs a little bit? Yeah. Well, because I just wrote a story for WIVB.com, which was essentially aggregating and recapping all of the national interviews that he did. And one thing he said that I found interesting, and I do think there's there's multiple contexts here, because it was a question about Justin Jefferson, and he was asked about Jeff- Justin Jefferson, and he praised Justin Jefferson and said he had a great year. But what he did make a point to mention, uh, if I can find the exact quote, was, well, essentially that Justin Jefferson now plays for an offensive-minded head coach. And it's easier to produce and easier to have the statistics and the type of year that Justin Jefferson had. And, you know, that could be a shot at the previous coaching staff that he played for with the Vikings was the big reason why he wanted to get traded. But I think it's a window into Stephon Diggs' mindset a little bit as to if he could pick his own head coach, the type of head coach that he would choose. Yeah, I could, I could get into that. Um, I do believe that he's frustrated, and we saw it. Uh, we, we saw it in the Browns game that was in Detroit. Uh, he's had blow-ups on the sideline. He's been doing it on the field. Uh, even in the Cincinnati game early, he what I thought, he was almost showing up Josh Allen during the game when he was telling him to get the ball up, meaning uh, the ball was uh, too close to the turf. And he was just like really yelling at Josh Allen um, on the field. This wasn't even to the sideline yet. And there were some uh, shots of, of him trying to uh, engage with Joe Brady and Josh Allen on the sideline. Um, and they weren't having it. Uh, they weren't, they were just ignoring him. Um, yeah. I think that that could be a problem. Uh, the storming out of the locker room before the speech was over. And yes, he can couch that as being ultra competitive and, um, and he is uh, his own man and he's not going to stand by and, and take this lightly and fans get excited about that. Uh, But when you start um, visibly uh, chafing uh, with your teammates that, that becomes a problem, and not just from an, uh, uh, an optics situation where we can see it or the fans can see it or the broadcast crew can see it. You know, the, it, it's something that has to be handled, and it needs to be handled deftly. And it can be handled, and teams do it, but sometimes it, it becomes a problem. Teams can't handle it. Sometimes uh, it, it becomes uh, uh, where, the, where the friction just becomes too hot. And, uh, and guys don't see eye to eye anymore. And, or you have a blow up and, and there's an apology afterwards or a meeting of the minds afterwards. And it happens once, but then it happens again, two weeks later and okay, there's a meeting of the minds again. And then it happens another week or two later. And then it's like, all right, this is getting old, man. I, I, we got to stop having these conversations. Uh, and that might not be necessarily a Stefan Diggs problem. And maybe it could be a Josh Allen or a, Ken Dorsey or a Joe Brady problem. I I don't know. I can't say. These guys aren't ever going to talk about it. They're only going to throw bouquets at each other's feet. Um, it's what we saw all throughout, you know, Randy Moss's career and Terrell Owens' career. And, uh, you know, Terrell Owens always has that retort when people say he was a bad teammate. Who says I'm a bad teammate? Well, nobody really was saying you're a bad teammate because they need to keep you happy. Um, Donovan McNabb and all these guys and Tony Romo couldn't afford to make you uh, upset. So there is a, that's a bit of a loaded question to say, who, who's saying that I'm a bad teammate. Um, it, but it always kept coming out that uh, he was a problem and that's why he played for so many different teams. Um, well, the again, thing I find interesting with Diggs, just interject real quick is that 
Yeah. We, we, we hear what he says, and we've, we've had these conversations on the podcast and off the air that, you know, the Bills are a good team and probably don't need to make many changes in the coaching staff and the roster structure. But Stefan Diggs sounds a lot like these fans that want to see a lot of changes. And, you know, and so I just wonder, he's, you know, the second or third best player, the second or third highest paid, most important player on the team. And if he feels like something needs to change, how many more other people on the roster and within the organization have that same angst about, you know, this team has been a Super Bowl contender for three years now and hasn't broken through to that game. Another comment Stefan Diggs makes to Sports Illustrated, we've been at it for three years, so kind of getting to the point where, hey, what are we doing now? We've got to try and make this thing make sense, figure out what's what. And that sounds like a lot of Bills fans that feel like somebody needs to be, you know, a, a head on a stake and some changes need to be made because the season that they had wasn't good enough. I, I don't know specifically what Stefan Diggs wants to see change, but he doesn't sound like he'll be too thrilled if everybody comes back in the same roles with the same mindset as they did toward the end of the season. Yeah, he'll, uh, he's 29. He'll be 30 uh, in November. So during uh, this next season, he'll be 30. And he does see a receiver in his old role in Minnesota taking up the mantle as the star. He's the all-pro now. He's the, he's the standard bearer. Stephon Diggs was at that spot a couple of years ago. Maybe he's crested. Um, and maybe he knows that he only has so many more kicks at the can here. Well, as long as Josh Allen's the quarterback of the Bills, to borrow Joe Burrow's um, swaggerific uh, response about the window. Uh, the window is open as long as I'm the quarterback. Uh, and that's the case with Josh Allen. And so the window for the Bills to win a Super Bowl is probably going to be open after Stefan Diggs is gone. Um, is he able to stay at 33, at 34, at 35? No, but Josh Allen's going to be here. Uh, so I think that there are different needs uh, in Stefan Diggs's uh, career than for maybe the Buffalo Bills organization. I think he wants to supercharge this uh, because his window is closing, and I don't necessarily blame him for that. Um, but, you know, and, and are you going to find, and that's not to say that you're going to be able to find anybody better than Stefan Diggs. I'm not saying it's time to trade in Stefan Diggs for a couple of young, young up and comers or anything like that. I mean, you need to keep, uh, keep Stefan Diggs around for as long as he's productive and he's still very, very productive. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, I mean, if you look at the Chiefs, what was the big offensive move that they made last season? It was trading away their best receiver because with Pat Mahomes' contract kicking in, covering up 17% of the cap, it was determined that money needed to be spread out somewhere else. And now the Buffalo Bills gave Stephon Diggs a major contract extension last year and have him being paid like one of the top receivers in the league, now with Josh Allen's extension kicking in. I don't expect anything like that to happen this offseason, but that might be a consideration or a conversation to have in a future offseason that if the Bills need to improve the roster anywhere else, that they can't have one of the highest-paid quarterbacks and one of the highest-paid wide receivers because very few other teams have been able to make that work. Yeah, and the Kansas City Chiefs overhauled their offense by bringing in first-time receivers, guys who uh, maybe were tailing off in their previous spots after some success. We're talking about Juju Smith-Schuster and uh, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, um, Kadarius Toney. Uh, maybe the Giants were uh, premature to give up on him, but Kadarius Toney had a big game in the Super Bowl. Um, and then young guys, too, that were – you know, that, that the Chiefs seem to be able to find, you know, Isaiah Pacheco, seventh round draft pick out of Rutgers. But then you take a look at his stats at Rutgers, nothing eye popping there. I was like, well, you take a look. It's like, what the hell is Rutgers doing with not <laughs> barely using this guy? Um, so I'm looking at it now. His senior year, well, I should say, uh, yeah, his, his last season at Rutgers, his fourth season there, 647 yards rushing, 3.9 yard average. I mean, it's, and then he, you get him on the Chiefs, and uh, you know he looks like uh, I was going to say Walter Payton, but uh, Pacheco doesn't catch the ball. Uh, but uh, Jim Brown, and uh, again I'm exaggerating, but there are ways to spend your money. Uh, Tyreek Hill wanted too much. The Chiefs traded him, and the Chiefs immediately retooled all their skill positions around Patrick Mahomes with the exception of Travis Kelsey, of course, who is the guy who 
makes that offense go uh, in terms of Pat Mahomes' uh, options on a play-to-play basis. But still, they were able to overhaul the rest of the team. Um, that's So you raise a good point there when you, when you say that maybe Stephon Diggs doesn't have to stick around. But I don't think that the Bills have a Travis Kelsey that they can rely upon to be the the nucleus of that offense to go along with with Josh Allen. I think that Stephon Diggs is uh, I, I think that Travis Kelsey is a much safer bet to do that with your offense than it than the Stephon Diggs. Uh, that's for sure. Um, just by nature, the positions that they play. Uh, the types of player that they are in terms of catching the ball a little closer to the line of scrimmage, uh, the matchup nightmare that a Travis Kelsey is. Not to say that Stephon Diggs isn't a brilliant wide receiver, but teams have there are cornerbacks all around the league uh, who, who job is to guard number one receivers. Teams on um, the defenses just don't have guys who have they haven't been able to figure out how to guard guys like Travis Kelsey, Rob Gronkowski. Uh, George Kittle. I mean, they're just, some, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it, it's why the position's so much fun to me, uh, anyway, is because they can be so dominant and, and borderline unstoppable. Um, and with Diggs, there's, there's dead money in his dead cap money in his contract that you really can't trade him now and probably not even next off season. But the contract that they gave him, puts them in a position where they're not going to have a lot of cap room to add weapons around them. He's probably going to be some version of double team. And, you know, I think they need to square and get this to the point to where maybe his production dips, but that allows other players on the offense to flourish, or maybe the bills. I, I think what he wants is Josh Allen to force it into situations where he covered maybe a little more often. And maybe he's done that at various points in time over the years. And, didn't do it quite as often after his elbow injury in the second half of the year, but something needs to budge there. Stefan Diggs either needs to be more accepting of the offense and his role in it, his place in it and where it goes. But Stefan Diggs always says, he always says that he wants all the other guys to get the ball too. His, his actions don't necessarily match up with that at all times, especially when things aren't going well, or if the bills are, if the offense is in a shaky situation, but uh, or going through a period for where it's a, it's uh turbulent for a series or two or three, uh, like we've seen in some games in, in November and December, um, January. But um, he's always said that he's, he's keen on let's get Isaiah McKenzie, his touches and let's get Gabriel Davis, his touches. And I'm all for this and I'm all for that. And let's bring back Cole Beasley and let's do, and, but, but then it doesn't always seem to match up. Now the guy was voted a captain by his teammates and we can get into the whole thing about the way he bolted out of the locker room before Sean McDermott delivered his speech and before the rest of the coaching staff was uh, out of the press box and, and into the locker room too, and how he needed to be called back in by Duke Johnson from the practice squad. And Hey man, get back in there. You don't want to, you don't want to leave like this. And, and I know that it, it seems to me is that uh, Stefan Diggs is going on a little bit of a rehabilitation tour right now. Um, he didn't talk at the pro bowl. He refused interviews there, uh, not just with me, but with anybody. Um, but now that the season's over, he's willing to, he's willing to chat and he wants to, and it seems to be that he's maybe creating more smoke, uh, than he is dousing any concerns about, um, any kind of problems he may have with the bills offense. Right. And, well, and one reason he spoke last week is he was doing promotion for Downey on Radio Row, and that, that's where all these interviews were facilitated. But I listened to all of them, and Stephon Diggs is a very – what's the word for it? He's likable, and when he explains himself, you tend to think, all right, I get it. He, he had a very reasoned explanations for his frustrations and why the way he acted on the sideline after some of these games. What's more odd is why the silence and why – the cryptic tweets and what is he not saying? Why is he upset? Because the reason he explains why he's upset, I mean, that kind of applies to all of the players on all of the teams that don't win the Super Bowl. Oh, he's mad because they didn't win a championship. It seems like there's some underlying beef that he has with either the offense or the organization. And he's a good enough teammate to not come out and say that publicly. 
but he's also biting his tongue a little bit, it seems, and not saying exactly why he's upset still weeks after the season ended. I, I, yeah, I think that we can, I mean, you can read between the lines. Uh, and I, I said, I, I'm, we're, I'm, we're left to speculate, really, or at least I am. I haven't been able to ask him any questions. Uh, nobody in the local media has, have they? That, that no, no, seen? these were all Dan Patrick, Rich Eisen, those types Right. Of so we're left, to, we're left to speculate. And part of my speculation is I think that he sees his window um, closing. Not that it's near, that it's about to slam shut, but he's been at this for seven years in the NFL, roughly. I'm taking a stab at it. He's going to be 30, so I'm going to maybe eight. However many seasons he's had, I guess I rather than guess, I'll, I'll look at it. He just finished his eighth NFL season. Maybe he's got three or four uh, good ones left or great ones, uh, great chances to be uh, the guy who is the, is the, uh, the catalyst for an offense to win a Super Bowl. Um, and... Justin Jefferson has kind of already surpassed him as the best in the league, the guy that the Vikings got for him. The Vikings got better off of the Diggs trade. The Bills also got better. I wrote a story about that. It was actually a brilliant, it was a great move. Um, but I think it would be interesting uh, to poll Bills fans. There'd be some bias because they love Stefan Diggs. Would you trade Stefan Diggs for Justin Jefferson straight up right now? Well, yes. Hell yes. yes. Hell yes, you would. Yes. but and, and you'd have him for more years. Yeah, I mean, yes, you would make that trade. And I think there, there was more involved in that trade. It wasn't a straight-up one pick for one player. But also, I think the Justin Jefferson comparison is interesting because Justin Jefferson had better numbers this year and is the maybe the offensive player of the year in the NFL or a candidate for it, and Stephon Diggs was not. But the Bills had a higher-ranked offense, and the Bills won more games, and the Bills went a week further into the playoffs. So what is Stephon Diggs angry with? Is it with the fortune of the team, or is it with his no, role and I his think, production? No, I, I mean, if I, I think he's just like a lot of athletes. You take a look at your standing in the league, and just two years ago, he was considered the best wide receiver in the NFL. and now he's not the the guy who went who the Vikings got for him is considered the best in the NFL. I just think it's a pride thing. I don't think it's he wishes he was back in Minnesota or anything like that, or he begrudges Minnesota. I think it's you know the 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 league keeps changing. The league keeps getting different and younger. Uh, I keep getting older, and the league keeps getting younger. You know, um, here I, I'm. I keep coming close. Uh, I was, I, and maybe falling a little further back as some, as we've mentioned, are the bills regressing? I don't think so because of everything that they dealt with this season. I think that all, that all factors and, and needs to be uh, in the equation for any kind of regression, but from a clear, clearly from on the surface, the bills went to the AFC championship game two years ago, Stefan Diggs with, you know, hand, you know, hands on his hips, the famous photo with the confetti. There was 13 seconds last year. They were 13 seconds short of repeating and going back to the AFC championship game. So they regressed because they only made it to the divisional round. And then this year they get to the divisional round and were beaten soundly for 60 minutes. So you can say each step of the way, since Stefan Diggs has gotten here, the bills are sliding back uh, in terms of, their vantage point on a Lombardi trophy. It keeps maybe dipping below the horizon a little bit more uh, every year he's been here, as opposed to coming closer based on things that you want to talk about uh, when you forecast a team and what they've learned from the season before. Oh, they have the experience. They know what it takes. Sometimes you have to lose. You have to learn how to lose before you learn how to win. You know, all those sports cliches and adages. Well, now they know what they need to do. Now they know the team that they need to beat. Now they need to gear up for Mahomes. Now they need to, and all these things that you can do to get better that you're supposed to do to, for those teams that come close and then get over the hump, the bills can't get over the hump. And I, I can, if Stefan Diggs is a human being, then he's going to look at that and, and get anxious. 
uh, as he's about to turn 30. And that, maybe that's a lesson for the Sabres and Sabres fans to not totally expect that age and experience and development and linear progression is going to happen, that different challenges arise as you get closer to reaching your goal or as you get older and, and people start making more money. But one thing with Stefan Diggs that I looked up today that I also thought was interesting, so he had mentioned a few times that things change after week nine, he said, that they didn't have the same recipe and formula for winning after that week nine is what he mentioned. Now, you'd have to look at it. Does he mean week nine? Does he mean game nine? If you look at game nine, that was the Minnesota game where he actually had a very productive game. The offense was very productive, but they happened to lose on some wild, wacky plays that happened in the fourth quarter. But if you split the season after that point, Stephon Diggs' production goes significantly down. I had the numbers in front of me, but I don't have them anymore. But it's like three or four less targets and catches per game, a lot less yards. But the Bills' offense, through the first nine games, averages uh, 27.8 points per game. Through the next nine games, including the playoffs, 27.7 points. Through the first nine games, the Bills are 6-3. and three. Second nine games, including the playoffs, 8-1. and one. The only game they lose in that stretch is the playoff game. So from an offense and a team perspective, they didn't really get any worse. But their number one receiver was less productive, and that seems to be where a lot of the frustration comes from. And Yeah, so I think that that's – pretty indicative and that that's those are great numbers jonah i didn't know that um and so they're still winning and in fact winning more on a percentage basis and he's getting more and more upset and still scoring and we saw it with our own eyes he had a season or he had a career high 11 touchdowns he averaged 89 yards a game second highest of his career he was second team all pro he did get voted to the pro bowl whatever that's worth anymore but he was second team all pro um he had a great year um, but yeah, it doesn't feel that way based on how it was left and the, the messaging I think that's coming from him, uh, over the, and what, when was the last time we heard from him? I think after the, the Thanksgiving game, I don't know that he's, he spoke after a game. Uh, I don't think that he did any of the, any news conferences or spoke, I mean, did he have his Wednesday news conference? I mean, maybe? look, I, I cover the visiting locker room on game days and I don't cover him on the road, but I don't think he spoke in the last five, six weeks of the season, at least after a game. And that's another thing. He can put, he can quiet some of these doubts and wondering what he's upset about by talking after a game and say, it's okay if I only catch two passes, but we won. Because there were a lot of, there were a couple of games where he didn't speak after, and I think one where he seemed to leave in a huff, that the Bills won. So it wasn't, it's almost like a basketball player that, you know, you got to score 30 points and win. And if the team wins, but you only had 15 points, well, that's not good enough. And it seems to be a little bit of that, reaction i think you probably get that with a lot of the best wide receivers in the nfl but we're seeing it up close here in buffalo and i think that's what you get when you trade for a superstar receiver who wanted out of his previous team because he wasn't getting enough attention and targets and credit in their wins and i don't think you should be surprised that that's happening again here in buffalo yeah those are great points um I had another Stefan Diggs point I was going to make, but it, it eluded me. Well, I think um, you mentioned there was a game where he spoke after and he talked about not passing the ball enough. Oh, right. What game that was. Yeah, that was after, I believe that was the game. It was in Detroit. I remember being in the Detroit visiting news conference room. So I'm not sure if it was the Thanksgiving game or if it was the Browns game. I'm guessing it. I think it was the Detroit game. Yeah, the, and the he was talking game, he about wasn't happy, and he didn't. Talk he was about talking it. about Josh Allen's body language. He was talking about uh, how he's concerned about Josh Allen's body language, and we're we're running the ball more. We're trying to figure things out. I, yeah, he was. He was. I didn't. It was hard to say he was throwing shade. I think that if you he said those same things now, it would be it would sound like throwing shade. Uh, but at the time, this was a guy who was talking every week. He was talking after games. He was engaging. Uh, he was being his usual uh, eloquent self, uh, you know, really um, easy to like uh, when he when he talks. But then he gets when he gets sullen, and then these little things start uh, sliding out. I think it does hit, it does him a disservice because, as you said, he could get out in front of a lot of this stuff or or dispel a lot of it by just having a chat every now and then uh, with a reporter. Uh, or a, a group of reporters. It doesn't have to be a news conference, but he's he's doing these things for for pay, 
which is what Radio Row is for Downey, you were saying. He's got this commercial out where he thanks Bills fans. That's part of his M&T um, uh, sponsorship uh, or endorsement, I guess I should say. So, yeah, I think that we're starting to see a little bit of that mystery that Minnesota Vikings uh, fans had with him. It's like, yeah, he's a competitor. So you have to take that for what it's worth, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be healthy. Uh, Jonah, anything else you want to talk about? Oh, let's. Uh, what's going on with Big Four basketball? Well, there's a lot going on. No, nobody's really separating much from where they were weeks or two weeks since maybe we last talked about them, but the Niagara men are in the top five in the Mac and the Niagara women are in the top three in the Mac. And they both look like uh, of all the local teams, the ones that can maybe make some noise in March, but there seems to be maybe some ceiling, especially with the women in terms of how good those top seeds are. And then UB and Bonner are both hovering around 500 in the middle of their league. And UB had a big loss by a big number last night at Ohio. So as we've mentioned, as I've mentioned a few times we've talked about this year, I don't think this is a year where we're going to have too many local teams in the NCAA tournament and maybe even the NIT. But we do have, between the two Niagara teams, the Bonham men and the Buffalo men, I think some teams that could make a surprise run in their conference tournaments and maybe even a very surprise win of the conference tournament into March. But we don't have great teams that we should expect a great March out of. Out of the men and the women, who include, and they can both be men, they can both be women, the two teams that have the best chance of making the NCAA tournament? I mean, it's got to be the, both of the Niagara teams, and not just because of their record and where they're seated, but I think those leagues are a little bit more parity and ease for these teams. They're, they're in the top group of the Mac where the UB and Bonner are not in the top group and the Atlantic 10 is a very difficult league. And I don't, from looking at UB schedule, even though they've won games, they really haven't performed that well against the top teams in the Mac. And then between the two, between Niagara and uh, men and women, I think the Niagara women have a tougher time winning the final against Iona or Quinnipiac, one of the top teams in the league. And the Niagara men might be a little bit closer to winning one of those games against you know, they've beaten Ryder, which is the number one team. They've beaten Siena, and they didn't beat Iona last week, but they beat them last year. But I have my doubts about the Niagara men's ability to win three games in a row in March because as well as they played on some nights, they haven't been consistently good. But if I had to pick a team, I think it would be the Niagara men. I think if they get hot and they can find their best game three nights in a row, uh, they have the potential, and I think they can play with all of the teams. So I think that might be if I had to pick a team. And also the Bonner men, I don't think they're going to do it, but you really can't count out Mark Schmidt with a somewhat competitive team, coaching that team up and making a surprise run to the A-10 championship game as he's done before with teams that have been counted out. Well, Jonah, thanks for this. Um, and uh, thank you uh, for... Uh, joining me and finding the time on uh, National Archbishop uh, Janani Luwum Day. Uh, and I know that uh, that's more of a, uh, a morning uh, tradition for you, but also National Almond Day. Oh, nice. February 16th is, uh, wait a minute. Is it Fat Thursday? I've never heard of Fat Thursday. I've heard of Fat Tuesday. Right. Fat Thursday. Maybe this is fat everything because it's the week. It's, is it fat week? Is, does Lent start next week? Hmm, I don't you know. You know, you're a good Catholic. I know we're coming up on President's Day. So is it President's Week or is that next week? It's also World Anthropology Day. Hmm. Okay. Well, we had a good time. Uh, <laughs> Jonah? Uh, NBA All-Star Weekend, is that a holiday weekend? Not for me. Okay. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. 
Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsource solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400, 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you.